We are going to have a very odd service today from what you might be accustomed to on a day that uh, the world sets aside to honor fatherhood. We are going to start a series of messages on husbands and wives rather than fathers, and specifically this morning on wives. It might seem odd to you, but it really isn't, because my experience as a pastor has found that every Mother's Day that I talk to mothers, the best listeners are the men. And every Father's Day that I talk to fathers, the best listeners are the women. They do this. And I see those elbows. I see them, and I go. And sometimes more subtle than that, if they're holding hands or something, you see a squeeze, and you can see the husband turn his face over. And so um, today, I'm going to let the gentlemen listen in as I talk to their wives. And we look into God's Word, and we're going to spend three weeks on you gals. (laughs) You need a lot of work. Because there's lots of verses here in First Peter 3, we're only going to spend two weeks on the guys, because there's only one verse for them. Uh, don't get after me for that. You know, talk to God and tell him, why did you do this in the book of Peter? And, and let me know if he answers you. But we're going to go through this very systematically, as always. We're going to be looking at some passages that it calls us to, and also, we're, remember, we're nesting this within a significant theme of Peter, which is how do we bring our Christianity into our relationships? That that might be the primary place that we need to live out Christ. When we think about righteousness, we think about, well, I'm going to do what's right, I'm going to do or not do what's wrong. And we usually think about that in, in terms of moral decisions. Uh, I'm not going to steal, I'm going to share. Uh, I'm not going to hate, I'm going to love. And, and, and while that's relational to degree, I'm not going to murder anybody, I'm not going to do these bad things, um, and I'm going to try to do these good things. We don't often understand those couched in relationships. That it is in relationships that we really show our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we have Christ in our life and we want to walk in righteousness, that that means we're walking in a way circumspectly, is the biblical word, before men. That we're going to walk in an honorable fashion. The men will see it and react. They will respond to your walk with Christ. That it is a walk that is not in private. Um, your private life, um, I'm not going to say that, that it's, it doesn't need to be also righteous, but... What you do in private often is reflected in your relationships in public. They simply overflow. What is going on in your mind overflows into your mouth, James tells us. And so we reflect upon what's going on in your heart and mind by your speech. And what is it that's filling your mind comes out in your conversation. And that starts at a very young age with my children and now with my grandchildren. I can always tell what they've been focusing attention on, which is usually Disney um, or some other things out of the entertainment industry, and it comes out in their speech. And even now, we do that every now and then. Um, To this day, uh, well, not so much lately, I I really work on my speech. I work hard on on correcting it when I 
pick up something wrong. It, and, and changing speech patterns is really hard and uh, takes a lot of work. But I used to, every meal, before every meal, I'd tell them, set the table, pour the drinks, wind the frog. And I add this little bit at the end, wind the frog. Does anyone know where that comes from? I have a list of things to get done, and the last thing is always wind the frog. And I say, well, what in the world do you add that in there? Well, that's from a Disney Pixar movie, um, Toy Story. You know, he gives a list of things, and one of the things on last on the list is wind the frog. And so I just added that, and it gets my kids, and they're like, oh, when they were younger, and that was a big deal, well, it just stuck. And so these kind of things filter in. And, and it, they, so your private thoughts and, and what you're filling your mind with does come out. Uh, and so what's going on in your relationship with God on a private level is visible in your relationships, in your public life, of how you're relating specifically so far to those that are doing you injustice, those that are, have authority over you in the government, and those that um, may even be doing you harm, not just not treating you fairly, but to treating you badly. Now we're just going to take it, and we're going to uh, represent Christ to them, that that is my motive in life, not to get even, not to get my own way, not to look out for number one, but to consider how can I model Christ to this person who hates me, but really doesn't hate me, they hate Jesus in me. That's what they're reacting to. And remember that we're going to be looking at Christ as our example. We saw that several weeks ago. So we come to chapter 3, and we begin again talking about um, another more intimate relationship. We're really getting broader, and we're getting narrower and narrower and narrower. Uh, we went to the government, which is kind of out there. Then we went to your, your masters or those that are directly over you, have authority in your life that makes your life miserable on a personal level. Uh, and now we are going to go into your very home. And we're going to talk about that relationship. Now, this is a semi-private relationship, isn't it? But yet it becomes very public. Uh, your relationship with uh, your spouse um, it happens in your home, and I say semi-private because the two of you are there, even if there are no children in the home. The two of you are there. Your children are carefully observing your relationship with one another, more so than you understand. When we did our parenting study on Sunday nights, I told you, and we repeated it over and over again, so you should know the very most important relationship in a child's life is not between them and their father. It's not between them and their mother. It's not between them and their siblings. It's a relationship between their father and their mother. And so that happens in the home. That relationship is the most important relationship to a child. How are you relating with your spouse in front of them? So that's a, even your home is a public domain. Even if it's just you without any children, that's public. And you have the children added in, and now you have a much wider audience. But even so, it comes out into society. And so that's why um, when we see homes broken up, we see marriages broken, that's a public record. Uh, that's a societal uh, issue. And that's why just like marriage licenses are public record, and that's why we have a public uh, ceremony, with witnesses, it doesn't have to be a very large public, but it's a public thing. 
you have at least two witnesses of that. Um, the, and the society, in terms of its governing authority, is there, represented. So also, in the divorce, we have a very public thing of record. Why? Because it matters. And somewhere in, in history, we understood that the, that the culmination of marriages and the dissolution of marriages is important for society. Because it is representing what's going on in our homes. And of course, we know the destructive nature, first of all, that many of our relationships aren't culminating in marriages. That should disturb you. And also, how many of those marriages are ending in divorce and separation. That should further disturb us. It tells us something is fundamentally wrong. And if that comes into the church... Oh, we should be on our knees praying. We should be confessing. We should be repenting. Because if that is consistently going on in our churches, we are failing. Not just in training men to be fathers and husbands. Not in training wives to be mothers and wives. uh, But we are failing in developing godly relationships between people and their God. Because ultimately, these lateral relationships are a reflection of what our relation with God is. And that's what's going to be brought out here in 1 Timothy 3 within your relationship. And so we do not divorce our relationship with Jesus Christ from our relationship with our spouse. They are intimately tied together. And if we start numbering off statistics saying that the divorce rate in churches is no different than the divorce rate in the world then that is a condemnation on the church for failing, not in marriages, but to failing in developing relationship between their congregants and their God. That if Jesus Christ isn't Lord of your life, then you're going to have problems not only in that relationship, but in every relationship. And so we just got done studying the end of chapter 2, that we are modeling Christ to one another. And that doesn't start when you leave your house. It starts when you wake up in your bed and when you go to sleep in your bed. That's where it starts. Where do I start modeling Christ to other people? Is when I turn over and see that face that I share this bed with and I see that face that I want to model Christ to that person. And as we're going to see from God's word, there are no exceptions. Let's read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 6. It says, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. For when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornments be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, holy women trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And so here's our presentation, the beginning of working in the family relationship. You say, well, why does it begin with the wives? Why doesn't it begin with the husbands? After all, he is the head of the home. Because in the 
theme of Peter here, he is talking about submission to authority. And so he's not addressing it from the top down. He is addressing it from the bottom up. And so he's already talked about you're under the authority of government. You're under the authority of your masters, of those that rule over you. You're under this authority. And it might seem very odd that Christ is our example of how to behave when under authority. Because we think, well, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Yet, Philippians tells us very clearly, he humbled himself and became a servant. And it is certain that while he hung on the cross, he could have easily done what the song says, he could have called 10,000 angels. But he subjected himself, he humbled himself, and acknowledged these earthly authorities, and even explaining that to the Roman proconsul, that you wouldn't have any authority except God gave it to you. And so by submitting to your authority, I'm really submitting to my Father who is in heaven. So Christ placed himself under authority. He humbled himself. Uh, the biblical term is he emptied himself. He emptied himself uh, that he could become your servant even to the point of death on the cross. That's how low he went. And so when Peter builds from the bottom up, he is saying Christ lowered himself to the lowest point. Even though he carried all this authority that he studied in Sunday school, he had authority as Lord of the Sabbath, he's Lord of a, over d- disease and illness, he's Lord over the demons. He's, he certainly has that authority, but he subjected himself to become your servant, to carry your sin for you. And so when we start at the bottom of the authority ladder, in Peter's mind, that is not the weakest place of Christianity. That is the strongest place for Christianity. And we think, because we have the hero concept, that the greatest evangelists are those with, this, with, with a great uh, platform to speak off of. And so we get excited when this, with this really good athlete with national attention, you know, kneels and prays or talks about his faith. We think that it's these kind of things, when it's the really, these really wealthy people, these entertainers, actors, these uh, politicians, when all of this, these people with this big platform become Christians, that's really uh, testifying of Christ, and we praise the Lord for that. And we forget that in the history of, of the church, that isn't the best kind of evangelism that was ever done. It's not how Christ came. Right? He didn't come and was born in Jerusalem and had the accolades of royalty all of his life. Right? He's, we're going to talk about that tonight in our worship service tonight, about Christ's birth. And he was born in humility, in a stable, in a manger. And the first people to witness that were shepherd boys. Not really the thing you think of, well, this is God incarnate, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords, this is royalty. Um, And so in Peter's mind, it is not the most powerful testimony for those in authority to recognize Christ, although that is wonderful, but it is those who are subjects. And, and even when that does happen, uh, and I use the book of Daniel as an example a lot during this study in Peter, and I probably will do it more, 
Um, think about this. Yes, we have a chapter of the book of Daniel written by Nebuchadnezzar explaining his conversion to Christ, but look what it necessitated. It necessitated him eating out in the fields like an animal for years. God had to humble him to make that. But think about who was sharing Christ with him. Who was sharing the truth of the gospel with Nebuchadnezzar? It wasn't people born in royal estate. It wasn't people, it was slaves captured from another country, brought in. Granted, they were the best and brightest of that country that they could figure out, probably princes, but when they brought them in, they were slaves. They were servants. They were told when to eat, what to eat, how to eat. They were, they were trained in Babylonian things, and they were subjects. And yet it is their stand that does this, as testifies upward. And so we're going to start with the wives. Why are we starting with the wives? Because that's where Peter starts, is because his whole theme is we're going to radically represent Christ, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. And so we've already talked about being under government, being under masters, being under all these authorities, and that we're going to try to be honorable, being even submissive. And by the way, we're going to develop this further. Uh, we're going to get a couple of chapters later. It's going to say, young people, submit to your elders. It's going to, and then it's going to say, in fact, all of you submit to each other. We are building from a point of humility. And so we start here with the opportunity of wives. And we know that there were uh, certainly most of the church in the first century were largely slaves. And, um, and it's kind of interesting to read through the book of Acts. It says uh, that of all the women that received Christ as Savior, it says it doesn't really name the, the lower class women. It says several prominent women accepted Christ. And that's borne out also in works like Josephus, that while Christianity among uh, largely the lower classes was both uh, male and female, when we got in the upper classes, while there were occasions where there were uh, important men that received Christ as Savior, it was the prominent women that did that. So in Peter's writing, he's writing to a church that's made up largely of slaves or lower class population and prominent women, which meant that their husbands did not come to know Christ. Correct? Or it would say prominent men and women, but it doesn't say that. It says just the prominent women. And so here you are, an upper-class woman receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now you're in a mixed home because your husband hasn't come to know Christ. And so Peter wants to communicate there. And so he's going to be able to talk to everyone under authority, including these prominent women who are having to be submissive to these men who are accustomed to authority. We're going to talk about what that means. You guys don't have any idea what that means because you've never lived it, ever. So he begins, wives, likewise. Let's just stop with the word likewise. We can say, well, the likewise goes back to servants in verse, chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. And so you might say, well, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. And we can make that correlation between wives and slaves. But we're not going to do that because that's not really what it's talking about. I want you to go jump down in chapter 3 to verse 7 and notice the same use of the word, husbands likewise. Do you see that? 
The likewise isn't pointing to a previous example. It's not wives, be like slaves in your home. That is not what it's saying. Uh, it, it, it's really going, the likewise here for both of these and later on is going back to the example of Christ. Like Christ, be submissive to the, this authority in your life, to your husbands, to your own husbands. And the likewise, both here and in verse 7, points us back to the end of chapter 2, where it talks about Christ. He was abused, he was beaten, he was reviled, he was slandered, he was, he was maltreated, and he didn't open his mouth, he didn't get back, he didn't get even, he simply took it. Did he enjoy it? No, but he took it, because he had something more. He wanted to bear our sins in his own body, and thus he was committed himself. When we studied all this several weeks ago, he committed himself to God. God will righteously judge this all out at the end. Right now, I have an aspiration, a goal, and that is the salvation of all men. I understand that they hate me, but I'm trying to deliver them. So wives, likewise, the way Christ subordinated himself, even to the point of death and horrible abuse, for the benefit of sinners who were abusing him. So you represent Christ in your marriage. The likewise here doesn't go back to slaves, it goes back to Jesus. Remember, we've been talking about in our relationships, you are designed and called, you are, you are made able by the power of the Holy Spirit and salvation, to be Christ to others. That is to be the one, not that you're going to save them, but that you are the messenger of salvation to them. And that's what this is really calling us to. Wives, just like Christ, let Christ be your example. Be submissive to your own husbands. And again, we can spend a lot of time on the word submissive, right? We've already done that to a degree in chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to see it again in chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. Uh, we're going to see this whole idea of submission. This is the foundation of our relationships. It requires first a humiliation that we consider others worthy of our Life. Are they worthy is not relevant. We consider them worthy. Just as we are, the Bible talks about we are counted worthy. Over and over again, in terms of our relationship with God and our reception of Jesus Christ's salvation, it says you are counted worthy, that God has counted you. You weren't worthy of him dying for you. There's no way. There's nothing of value in you to God. He counted you worthy. That is, he esteemed you more than what you were. And this is the foundation of submission. The foundation of submission isn't that, well, if I don't, they're going to knock me on the head, or they're going to do this, or they're going to do that. No, that's not the foundation of, of godly biblical submission. The foundation of that is humility. It says, I'm going to esteem them greater than I. That's again, goes back to Philippians chapter 2. So humility is the premise by which we understand 
what submission is. Let's jump over to chapter 5. Just jump over to chapter 5 so you can see this. I'm not making this up. This is just my opinion. Let's read verses 5 and 6. It says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Do you see the correlation and connection that these are intimately tied together? You will never be submissive if you have not humbled yourself. God's, Christ had to humble himself first, and then he was submissive to the authorities on earth that he needed to be submissive to. Okay? Humility comes first. It makes submission very easy. So we understand that submission means I'm going to count, and in this case with wives, I'm going to count my husband worthy of my life. That means your time, your energies, your attention, your honor, everything, your very life. I am going to consider him worthy of that. Whether he is or not isn't relevant. This is not humility. Humility doesn't matter what the other person is. Because if that mattered, Jesus Christ would have never humbled himself to die for you. Humility is a, a commitment. It is a decision a person makes about themselves and about the people around them. I am going to consider you, I'm going to honor you high enough to say you are worthy of whatever you demand of me. Whatever it demands of me to help you. I'm ready to pay that price. Again, humility is the foundation. And so when we humble ourselves, you will find it a lot easier to submit. So what does the world come in to disrupt this relationship of wives submit to your husbands? Because that's not the norm anymore, is it? And by the way, it wasn't the norm back then when Peter wrote this either. Well, we had the women's liberation movement, right? And what was it? Not most, a lot of you didn't live through that. A few of us did. Uh, we lived through those, really started back in the 50s, um, yeah, the suffrage movement, that, things like that. Uh, born out in the 60s, 70s is when it really, uh, you had the National Organization of Women and all this stuff going on, burning bras and all these things going on in society. Um, what was it all about? We're going to stand up for ourselves. It is pride. Pride. Be proud of who you are without a man. Stand up and be your own person. It's all about the individual. It's not about anyone else around you. It's all about you. It is the opposite of what God's word calls us to. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. It is the opposite of the biblical quality of humility that calls us to pride. I deserve better treatment. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And that goes for in the workplace, I deserve to get paid whether I work hard or not. I deserve this, and we hear it out of children even. I deserve, this isn't fair, I even hear, <laughs> that's not fair. I was like, Pfft. You know what's fair? Here, I'll tie you to a tree and put ants all over you. That's fair. 
Why? Because you're a snotty-nosed brat. Mouthing off to adults and not obeying. You want fair? That's fair. But they already know it. Because we are, we have pride to begin with, and all we need is a little bit of encouragement to stroke that, and boom, it just explodes in our life. And what is the end result? Broken relationships. Because only one person will matter to you, and it is you. And as soon as you are the only person that matters to you, everyone else is expendable. If they don't meet your felt needs or even your real needs, um, cast them off. If they don't make you feel good about yourself, I can't let you be my friend on Facebook because you tell me the truth. I only want people that make me feel good. What will be if you put the wrong emoji there? And yeah, I've lost, I, I haven't lost friends. I've just been cast out of people's friends list because I just tell the truth. Oh, yeah, you wanted me to smiley face every post you put on there. Well, some of them are pathetically horrible. And you need somebody to slap you and tell you the truth. You see, that's where pride takes us. Submission is built on humility. And so the world has been fighting, and you have been ingrained with this concept. Most of your, well, pretty much for everyone here, their adult life. You have been ingrained with this, that we need to uh, stand up for ourselves, that in the relationship we should at, at best be equals, uh, not only in position, but in roles. And those are two different things. Uh, we, we can be positionally equal and still have roles of greater and lesser. Uh, we hopefully understand that, that you can be smarter than your boss, but he's still the boss, right? You can be even equal capacity, ability, strengths, weaknesses, everything, but if he's the boss, he's the boss, and you're not, even though you might be equal in every other thing. We understand roles are different, and so within our relationships. And so we have wives, like Christ, humble yourselves to be submissive to your own husbands. I love the fact that it says your own husband. Some have made a big deal. Don't be submissive to other people's husbands. Well, we're going to have this verse in chapter 5 that says be submissive to one another. So that's a big broader one. We're going to kind of go narrow and then we're going to open it up broader here later. Uh, so we have that one. So that doesn't cut it. And by the way, that's also repeated in Ephesians and other places. Submit to one another in love. And then it says wives, submit to your husbands. But why is it your own husbands? And we can say, well, it's 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 limiting it. No, what it's telling you is this is the husband you married. Own it. Own your marriage. You put yourself there. There was a time in your life where you had a choice. That was when you were single. <laughs> own your marriage. Own your husband. It is your own husband. It is, it is that which you have placed yourself under that authority. You chose that. Even in this society, in, in, in societies here on the earth today, where you don't have necessarily a direct choice in that, own it. Maybe your parents selected that guy and arranged that marriage. Thus is the case. Own it. It is your own husband. You've been placed there either by those who love and care for you or by your own decision, whether it was a poor decision or a good decision, own it. That's your husband. Settle that matter 
at right away. Let's not sit there and say, I don't know, maybe God had somebody else for me and, and I just made a really bad decision. Well, own it. All of us live with bad decisions because as part of the maturing process and wisdom is gained there, hopefully, but you can't go back. Ask Israel. They learned that lesson. We're not going there. We're going to listen to the ten spies instead of the two. Okay, wander in the wilderness 40 years. Oh, we're sorry. We, can we just do a redo? We'll go up there. No, they died. You don't get to invade the land. You're going to wander in the wilderness 40 years because you made a really poor choice. The consequence doesn't go away. So it is. Own your husband. Well, he's a slob. He's, he's, he's not the godly leader I wanted. He, he drinks too much. He's lazy. He's whatever. List them off all you want, and you'll get nowhere with God's word. You'll get nowhere with me. I was like, well, that's water under the bridge. You made that choice. And now, own it. And you can own it one of two ways. You can own it miserably, you can own it biblically. And have it bring out, polish you in Christ. Now I'm going to use that term a little bit. I've been trying to think of a way to, uh, to illustrate this. And I think I just want to talk about a polish. Um, whether it's a rough piece of metal uh, that we want to polish into something that you start wearing as jewelry, a piece of steel that I just want to polish down until I can cut with it, uh, a piece of paper, a thin piece of paper, or, you know, tomato skin. Uh, what does it take to polish things up? It takes a lot of friction. I just want to share with you, from a biblical perspective, I think that there is a lot to be said for owning your marriage to someone who isn't easy to live with, as an opportunity to be polished in Christ-likeness. And, and I'm going to bring that into the church as well. A church is filled with a lot of different personality types. And that's okay. You don't all want my personality because I would not get along with you. <laughs> for those of you who are my personality, I do get along with you. All right? Because we humble ourselves. But the friction that is there is polishing. It's an opportunity for me to be more Christ-like. If I just surround myself with people that adore me and get along with me and, and yes, pastor, yes, 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 husband, yes, dad. If I have those kind of people, um, I, I get no polishing done. And so we have this opportunity, and I know the biblical thing is that we're refined, that we take off the dross, that we become purer in our goal, but when we really look at it, this is an opportunity to be more Christ-like. And it requires sometimes some friction. And in those, these cases where the friction isn't your choice, um, we acknowledge, how do I take it? Well, I take it as an opportunity to be more Christ-like, to recognize that Christ humbled himself all the way to bearing my sin in his own body on a cross. Well, how polished is that? We still talk about it. We still have crosses we use. And jewelry and apparel and 
and in our buildings to identify them as the highest mark of love. Not something you'd think of, well, that's what I want to enjoy for the rest of my life. So wives, to be submissive to your own husbands, own that relationship, and please notice that even if some do not obey the word, his concern has been, what do the Gentiles look at you and see? What do the government authorities look at you and see? What do your masters look at you and see? And now in your relationship, what does your ungodly husband look at you and see and hear? And this is the first time we talk about speech. We're also going to talk, we've talked about with, Matt, with not reviling those who revile you. I'm not going to spit back venom to someone throwing venom at me. I'm going to take it, I'm going to smile because I have a greater purpose than defending my ego. And let's just be honest, that's what it's about. Most of your fights within relationships, not only in the home but outside of that, are about defending your ego, your pride. When we humble ourselves, we deal with that. Um, there are a lot of times, that I, there are a lot of things that I have endured in my ministry that I've never been able to share with my wife. She can't handle it. People might say something to me. They might be nasty. I'm not going to go home and say, oh, my, this person said this to me because she won't let anyone say anything bad about me in her presence. And if I, she hears about it, now she can't minister to them um, because to her, defending me is important. But it's not important to me. Because defending our ego is what usually gets us into fights and brings trouble in relationships. So I'm going to own my marriage as a wife. I'm going to own my husband. I'm going to recognize that I'm going to seek to reach them, that they are disobeying God's word. You can take scripture, you can take chapter and verse that says, you're not obeying this. And you can turn the page and say, you're not obeying this. And you can turn the page and say, you're not obeying this. And every single time, you are sinning against your husband. Because it's not your job. Even if they disobey God's word, and you can sit there and you can put scripture references after each one of the things they do, and, and you go boom, 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 boom. And what is it going to accomplish? It says, without a word, you can win them by your conduct, not your speech. That similarly with masters and their servants, with, with those under government authority, toward government authority, with, with Christians versus Gentiles. Uh, among the unbelieving world, that we don't sit there and just claim our rights and we don't sit there and castigate. Rather, we simply say, I will live Christ-like before you. I will walk in righteousness. And I'm not going to even tell you I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to remind you of it. It's not my job. Now, husbands, when we get to yours in a few weeks, and your wives will make sure you're here, because um, <laughs> I told you the whole schedule, right? So you know, you marked it on the calendar. Oh, that's a big week. Um, we're going to talk about your responsibilities there. Um, 
to be godly? Because it falls on men like me. Because it's not your wife's job to tell you, it's my job to tell you. It's your brethren here to tell you um, that we are the ones that are to be intervening. That's why we have a community of faith. And then if you don't listen to that, now you have to deal with God as the judge. And that's a frightening concept because he defends the fatherless and the widows. But guess what that means? If God is the defender of the fatherless and the widows, what does that mean about you? You're not irreplaceable. God can take up your family and take you out of it. That's just a little precursor. You got weeks before we get to that. So wives are going to submit to their own husbands. They're going to accept that marriage. They're not going to speak against it. They're not going to wish they had other. They're not going to be fantasizing. They're not going to be in their reading and their entertainment about or anything else about anyone else. They're going to focus in on that one that they are united with till death do they part. They're not obeying God's word. What do I do? I live an honorable life in front of them. Sound familiar? Should be because we keep doing it over and over again. All the way through chapter 2 and now into chapter 3. I'm going to live an honorable life righteous, chaste is the word used there, uh, that is holy, um, set apart uh, life, morally set apart life in front of them. I'm going to do the right thing. So what is doing the right thing? Apparently, you can do it without saying a word. Not only not saying a word to your husband, but not saying a word to your kids about your husband really gripes me when wives take out and communicate their frustration with their husband to their children under the guise of your father, your father, shame on you. Without a word, you're not being Christ-like in that you're called to honor him, whether he is there or not there, and if that requires you, because there's nothing good, he's a, you've married a no-good scumbag, to say nothing, then say nothing. But live as a godly wife. And we're going to see um, some good examples of that in weeks to come. And so they're going to observe. Now, I'm just going to share with you, men are going to watch more than listen. Women listen more than watch. It's the way we are designed. That's why when men get together, they'd rather do something to build relationships than to sit around and talk to build relationships. Not that they don't talk while they're doing, but the primary thing is doing stuff together, and then they have some discussion around that. And it's not that they never talk to each other. I'm not saying that. The dominant thing is to do things together. When women get together... It's the boringest thing you've ever seen. They just sit around and talk. Okay, and so women are sitting there thinking, if I talk to my husband, if I talk to my husband, I talk to my husband, I'm going to, no, you're not. Do, 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 he just tuned you out. Um, you're blah, 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 that's all you hear. Huh? I don't know what she's saying. 
It's right up there with, with 18-month-old Babel. They are watching more than listening. So when wives come to me and say, my husband doesn't listen to me, I say, I know, none of us do. We're not designed that way. Why are you talking? You know it's coming to you, men, right? Show me. I will watch. I will observe. Just think about how you courted. What happens in a courtship? She wants to hear all these words. He just wants to see what he's getting. From the very get-go. Right? She falls in love with him. He writes poetry. Oh, he speaks poetry. Oh, it just makes my heart melt. She is hot. Because men are observers. Women are listeners. Don't confuse these two roles. Without a word, show him your conduct. He's watching. He's watching you much more than he's listening to you. You might think that's not fair, but that's how they're designed. That's how God has built us. doesn't give us an excuse. It just says, understand who you're dealing with. And Peter says, listen, um, without a word... When your husband is doing evil and disobeying God's word, he's not being what he should be, you in your conduct be steadfast, be godly, be chaste, and they will see you. They will see it. And I would like to just share that not only does the ungodly husband need to see chaste conduct in his wife, the godly husband is looking for it too. It is the the greatest mechanism by which you can impact your marriage is that you do that which he can observe that demonstrates that you have humbled yourself and that have esteemed him worthy of your very life. That it's not going to be with a sigh, with a roll of the eyes, with a drudgery, but rather it is going to be the joy of serving this one who is your head. And yes, part of chase conduct is doing it with a smile, because you can see a smile. And they can see the alternative, can't they? Can't they? Oh, I know when my children, as well as my wife, are doing things because they have to, and not because it's a joy for them to serve you. We know the difference. <sighs> okay. I'll do it. See, they said just those three words, and that was enough. And I knew, oh, I'm not, they don't want to do it. I'll get up and do it. They don't want to. Let the conduct of our wives be that which is observed. And just by observing your conduct, you can win them over. Now, now, let's be very careful what we're winning them over. We're not winning them over to your point of view. We're not winning them over to you. We are winning them over to Christ because remember, the primary relationship that should concern you is not your relationship with your husband, it is your husband's relationship with his God. You're trying to win him over to Christ 
Because if that relationship is right, his latter relationships will be completely transformed. If he'll simply humble himself before the Lord and cry out to him, that is the beginning of the restoration of your marriage, of the healing of those relationships. So when we talk about that you will win them over, it can be won by the con. It's not winning them over so you get your way, you can sit down and be the princess or the queen and he can hover around you. We're not talking about, you know, we have terminology in mendom for this kind of thing, to whoop you. You're not waiting for him to be whooped by you. There you go. So he'll just say, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. If that's what you want, then you're not following a biblical model and you're not going to be happy. Because you're not going to have any joy of ministering up. And that's what this has all been about in this whole passage. In our relationships... I am wanting to be Christ-like. I want to go low and minister up. I want to be the lowest and minister upward. We had a big discussion with the people, with the leadership at charity of, of because of confusion between elders, bishops, and pastors. And in our constitution, as in theirs, same guy kind of was responsible for those a little bit, um, <laughs> The word elders and the word bishop and the word pastor refer to the exact same person throughout all of Scripture. Bishop, overseer, elders, old guys, um, and pastor or shepherd. You might say, well, why do we use pastor? Some groups use bishops, some groups use elders. And elders is the one that uh, is used most frequently in the Scriptures. We're going to see here in Peter as well. Uh, but Peter's one of those pastors uses all three of them in two verses to refer to the same person. So it's not just my opinion, it's God's word. On two occasions we have that where these three offices are the same person. So why do we pick pastor? Why do I don't want you to call me elder? I don't ask you to call me elder, Wesley. I don't ask you to call me bishop or overseer. Um, well, if you want to, no. <laughs> why do we traditionally pick the word pastor? It's the lowest of the three. It means shepherd boy. They're the under-shepherd. You're not the owner of the sheep. You're just the shepherd boy. You're out there feeding them and guarding them. You're out in the fields keeping watch over those flocks by night. That's another plug for tonight's message, by the way. That's what you're doing. You're taking the low. So we, I, we, we prefer to use the word pastor to describe our office because it's the lowest of the three terms. The biblical preference is elders, and then they talk about the word overseers or bishops to refer to the extent of their authority in God's view. Oh, that our wives would see the great value of, of taking it the lowest place and ministering upward. For this is what Christ has done for us. And then God will highly exalt us. And this is the promise of God. You want him to bless not only your husband, not only your marriage, but even yourself. You will do as Christ has done. He who has humbled himself so low, God has highly exalted. You cannot be abased enough without having God exalts you even higher. 
and with any kind of forethought, any kind of looking towards the God as judge, which we've already talked about, even Jesus Christ understood that God will judge righteously. The Father will take care of this. He will exalt me. I'm going to go into the grave, and I'm going to trust God to resurrect me. Can you trust God, that's what our singing has really been all about, to do this? Can you trust God to submit yourself by humbling yourself, esteeming your husband as worthy of your very life? And I know what that entails. And as a pastor, I've intervened because it's my job. People say, you don't beat your wife. Is it the wife's job? Without a word, let her conduct be observed to win him to Christ. But it's my job to intervene. We look at this and we say, well, uh, to what extent can that... I have honored him so highly above myself that he is worthy of my very life. This is Christ-likeness. Let it be polished in your life. Let it shine that we can observe it. Not only your husband, your own husband can be one, but even those around your marriage, in your extended family and neighbors and friends, watch that relationship. Oh, that we would minister down here upward instead of thinking that the most powerful positions are the way you minister down. No. We minister low up as Christ did. Humbled himself, became a servant, even to the point of death on the cross, and ministered upward. Considering all of us, lousy sinners, worthy of his shed blood. Were we worthy? No. He counted us worthy. Oh, that you would count your husband worthy of all your life. Of your attentions, your time, your energies, let alone the attitudes of your heart, of your love and affection of your respect and, and admiration. All you, can you admire somebody that is evil? If you've humbled yourself, you can say, I, wa- I want to win him. This is real love. I want to win him for Christ. His eternal state demands this of me. Is it painful sometimes? Yes. Is it humiliating? Yes. Add whatever word you want into, and I'll add the word yes, because Christ suffered all of that for you. Makes the list pretty long, doesn't it, when you think about what Christ suffered. I had it so good back home. You know, my dad never treated me like this. Well, think about what Jesus had before he left home. to come here to die for you. Model Christ in your homes, not as a head, but as a servant. This is your role. That God has equipped you for, called you to, and will bless you for. We're going to be going into some ancillary passages, uh, some additional passages throughout Scripture uh, in the next couple of weeks. We're looking at beauty, we're looking at at some other aspects um, for the next two weeks. But I just want to challenge you. It begins here with this word and, and uh, that submission. And we've tried, we've seen people try to 
make that word mean less than it does uh, to accommodate women's lib for the last 50 years. It means what it says. That I'm without a word going to give my very life to win my husband to Christ. As far as a husband winning his wife, that's a, a completely different scenario. Very different. And I'm convinced that the fact that so many families come to know Christ, if their husband, if the father comes first to Christ, the percentage of probability of the family coming to Christ is enormous. If the wife comes to Christ first, the likelihood of husband and children coming to Christ is small. We're talking about 30% compared to like 80, 75 to 80% probability. I'm convinced that most of it is because wives do not humble themselves to this point and and understand the great value of being polished to be like Christ, to minister from the very bottom up. To say, I can take this ground, this low ground. I can be abused. I can be maltreated. I can be ignored. I can be unappreciated. I can be taken advantage of. I can have all of this, and I can still do what's right, and that will be observable to men. It will be observable there. It will honor Christ, and it will be the best way to win my husband to Christ and bring up our whole marriage and our family to a level that honors God. Oh, get this right. And the rest that we'll talk about will fall into place and we'll say, well, that makes sense if I have taken hold of the concept that we humble ourselves. And it is not that the husband is not ever called to have humility. That's, it's just going to show itself differently because he has a different role. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. doesn't matter how ungodly they are. You can come and complain about it to me all you want. I may intervene, but I will give you the same message over and over again. Submit to them. I don't care. I don't really mean that. I don't mean that I don't care because I will engage him. But my, test, my, my, my counsel to you will always be, so model Christ to him. That you may win him for Christ. But if your goal is just that you have a comfortable, better life, then you'll see no help from me. Because you're just selfish. And there is no joy in that. Oh, that we'd be like Christ. Likewise, just as Christ, you submit to your husbands. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. And Lord, our prayer and desire is that our homes would reflect you. And Lord, we know that that's not always the case. Sometimes it's the wife's fault, sometimes the husband's fault, parents or children. Uh, Lord, just convict us to take up the responsibility that you've placed upon each one differently to be Christ-like in our relationships, in our homes. Understanding the great value that you are the judge of all the earth. You will judge husbands and wives not according to man's measure, but according to your word, that you will bless our homes if we choose to honor you in them.
even if it's just one of two spouses, you will bless that home. You've promised that, Lord. And we pray that you might work in our relationships, one with another, before our children. You might also work in our hearts in preparation, not only in the relationship within the home, but within the church, as we'll see in verses to come. Lord, help us. Humility is not a natural thing in our sin nature. We put it to death, but it lingers. It has no power, but it influences us. Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you and before one another, that we might serve as Christ served us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.